Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Welcome to BU Law with host David Yaz. So welcome to the Boston University School of Law podcast. I am your host, David Yaz. I happen to be a proud alum of the law school, class of 1993. Thank you. I'm the former publisher of Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. Currently, my day job is a vice president in Bernstein Global Wealth Management. But today, I am just a proud podcast host and excited to kick off this podcast. Now, at the podcast, we, of course, we connect with members of the BU School of Law community, and we hear about interesting things that are going on, professors and what they're working on. And we have a great topic today that will enlighten you, it will interest you, and it may even scare you a little bit. So let me explain that. When we're sick, what do we do? Our immediate response is to go to the doctor, and oftentimes we're given antibiotics to combat the ailment. There's a growing problem today, though. The problem is that many microbes that cause infections are becoming resistant to the antibiotics used to treat them. Some microbes have become so resistant that none of the available antibiotics work against them. And this is because antibiotics are being overused or misused. I've heard about this topic. I don't know too much about it, though. But that's going to change because we'll be talking to an expert. And the question may loom in your head, what does this have to do with the law? Well, we're going to find out. And we have the perfect person to talk about this. His name is Kevin Outerson. He's a professor of health law, bioethics, and human rights at the law school. He teaches health law and corporate law and co-directs the health law program, which, by the way, is currently ranked number two in the country by U.S. News. Thank you very much. Kevin also serves as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Law, the Medicine, and Ethics, a faculty advisor of the American Journal of Law and Medicine, immediate past chair of the section of Law, Medicine, and Healthcare of the AALS. He's also a member of the board of the American Society of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. Now, Professor Outison, he also blogs in his spare time somehow. He blogs about healthcare law and reform at a blog called The Incidental Economist. You can find it at theincidentaleconomist.com. There's no spaces in between. Put it all into your browser, theincidentaleconomist.com. And by the way, I checked out this blog, and Professor Artisan blogs on things like malpractice risk, the ethics of clinical trials, drug prices as they relate to Medicaid, a whole bunch of other great topics. And that was just this week, so it's frequently updated. We have him here. Welcome to the show, Professor Artisan. And Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. So tell us about this problem. We've heard about the overuse of antibiotics. We've heard that some microbes are becoming resistant to antibiotic medicines. Tell us about this, how this problem started, and what's going on with it. My main concern is how the law somehow can increase antibiotic resistance. So I'm a health lawyer. I want to see whether the law is contributing to the problem and whether we can change it. So for example, Intellectual property law gives a patent to the companies who create an antibiotic. And the clock is ticking. You know, they have 20 years from the time that they file the patent. By the time the drug gets on the market, there may be 14, 15 years left on the patent. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what is the incentive for the big drug company um, for the years left? They want to sell a lot of this antibiotic for the, the 10 or 15 years that are left. From a public health standpoint, Brand new antibiotic, the best thing to do with it might be to lock it away and use it only for the very sickest people, you know, people that have resistant uh, diseases. But instead, we take these 
fabulous new antibiotics, and we have incredible incentives to overuse them, to waste them instead of saving them for a rainy day. So that's an example of a legal incentive, a legal process, intellectual property law, that actually encourages everyone to do the wrong thing. So using your example, just to pick up on that a little bit, when a patent is granted, is there a concern given to public policy? In other words, does the patent office consider the utility of this of this you know new drug and whether it could have uh, an ill effect on people? No, no. It, I mean, the drug itself is not harmful, mm. and the patent office doesn't look at these issues at all. You know, they have a completely different frame. They're, they're not evaluating these patents for their impact on public health. And currently, we don't have any system to reward companies if they did the right thing. I mean, the right thing for a brand new first-in-class antibiotic might be that we use it as sparingly as possible for the next decade or, or, or 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, leave it to the doctors to make that decision. Um, but there's no way for a company to embrace that because that would mean totally destroying their profit. So part of the project, um, which I'm uh, participating with people from many different schools and many different disciplines, is to try to rework the incentives on antibiotics so that the the companies actually have some reason to do what what would be best for society. Do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, What a shock. Right. (laughs) Tell us, when we we hear about public health risks like this, we think about the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Tell, Tell us about that body and what that might that body might be doing to curb the overuse of antibiotics? Well, the United States government has a lot of um, CDC, and there's an interagency task force between CDC and FDA and some of the other agencies trying to control the inappropriate use of antibiotics. And it's a great, it's a great idea. You know, let's try to convince physicians and hospitals not to overprescribe and overuse antibiotics. But think about this if you are the drug company. Uh, this is the government trying to reduce the sales of your product. Okay, so the this is an example of the government and, and clinicians trying to do something that's right, reducing the inappropriate use. But from the company's perspective, it undermines your sales. And so you set up two big players, the private sector and the government, to have to be fighting against each other instead of cooperating mm-hmm. on an important issue. Isn't it the doctor's ultimate job, though? Isn't the doctor the ultimate gatekeeper? I'm thinking, you know, when I, you know, take my kid to the doctor for a sore throat or something, should the doctor be thinking about that long-term risk? And, and is that an appropriate counterbalance to the interest of the pharmaceutical companies? You know, the doctors now have a, a rapid strep test, so they should be able to tell before you leave the office whether you really have strep throat, mm-hmm. for which an antibiotic could be appropriate, or perhaps at the... Uh, you know, little Johnny or Jill has a has a virus, and if so, the antibiotic is is worse than nothing. It's it's dangerous. You know, mm-hmm. you know, it's ineffective and it could create resistance. But uh, many times, it's been my experience, and this has shown up in the literature, that uh, even if the rapid strep test comes back saying no, it's not strep, doctors will frequently, under pressure from mom or dad, go ahead and give a prescription. I've had doctors say that to me. They say, you know what? There's no real downside. Go ahead and take this antibiotic. And I, of course, you know, snap it up like it's a Flintstones vitamin. I mean, I'm just happy to get something, right? Yeah, see, there's there's two side effects that are negative. One is, of course, the societal issue that the more we use these drugs, the more that we undermine their effectiveness. 
But it's, it's hard when the, when the physician has a patient in front of them and there could be a benefit for this person versus a long-term detriment to society. I can understand why the physician writes the script. Mm-hmm. But the second person who can get harmed is this patient themselves because when, when you take an antibiotic, it affects your body. So one of the most dramatic and, and terrible diseases that you get in hospitals right now is something called Clostridium difficile, C. diff. And it's you wouldn't wor- wish it on your worst enemy. It's basically your entire intestines empty out, not to be too dramatic. Mm, right. It is caused by antibiotic use. It's when, when you take serious antibiotics when you're in the hospital, it clears out the, the helpful, friendly, commensal bacteria in your intestinal tract. It kills them too. And, and what happens then is that a, a dangerous bacteria, Clostridium difficile, now doesn't have any competition in the ecology of your, of your intestines and, and grows like crazy mm-hmm. and produces some side effects which are dramatic and painful and even uh, are deadly uh, to many older people in hospitals. So people need to understand that taking antibiotics changes the biology and the ecology of their own body. You know, if you looked at your hand under a microscope, you'd find thousands of bacterial species. Not all of them are bad. In mm-hmm, fact, mm-hmm. many of them um, have evolved kind of together with, with people and occupy ecological niches on our skin or in our stomachs or in our intestines. Many of them are quite helpful. A lot of our digestion is supported by friendly bacteria. Our gut. So, you know, part of what's going on here is is that as biology is looking more carefully at our human body. We're seeing all sorts of non-pathogenic bacteria that are actually valuable. Now, that's counterintuitive to what most people think, and I wonder if this is sort of a a sign of the times. You know, we've seen those when you see that there are commercials for now. I'm not even sure what they're for, but they show that microscope shot uh, shot of your hand or something, and all the little organisms living on your hand. And people, people like naturally the Listerine commercial. That's it. That's I mean, it. your and, mouth is crawling with these <laughs> things, right? And people naturally get grossed out. And we you know we live in an age here where you you can't walk into an office without bumping into some anti bacterial lotion for your hands, right? Okay. So there's, you, there's antibacterial toys. Right. But, well, you know what? I hadn't heard of that. There's antibacterial toys. No, there are. There's, 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 there's toys for the coating. But there's also data now showing that, that children who, when they're really small, um, play in the dirt, have, as, as adults and as, as teenagers and adults, have, have lower incidence of asthma and, mm-hmm. and other, because they're actually exposed to the normal stuff in our environment if they eat a little dirt. You know, my, we're, we're not going to feed our kids dirt on purpose. My mother used to say, you, you have to eat a pound of dirt before you die. Of course, that was something she told me when I was crying because I somehow got dirt in my mouth. Well, there you go. But a little bit of truth to that. So, you know, th- there was a time in which we understood that some bacteria are helpful. I mean, how do you make beer or cheese? Mm-hmm. You know, sure. Yogurt, ba- right. Or bread. <laughs> right. You know, it's not a bacteria. But, but you know, the, the idea that all of these microbial life forms are dangerous is a very modern notion and is uh, is overbroad. So tell us, 
we naturally think of what can be done to to solve this, some sort of law or legislation. Tell us what you would know about the, what legislators are doing involving, you know, antibiotics and prescription privacy and, and what policies maybe we could see in the future that could help this. There's, there's several bills in Congress. Uh, one is called the GAIN Act, uh, which is trying to increase the incentives for, for companies to bring new uh, antibiotics to the market. And, and I like many things about this initiative, but uh, the main difficulty is that if we somehow brought twice as many or five times more antibiotics to market right now, it would be fine for a short period of time, but the company's incentives will be to overuse them during the during the patent period. And in five or 10 years, we'll actually be worse off because mm-hmm. we would have you know, burn through um, these available things. So, you need we need to think about antibiotics. Not, I mean, we need to think of them more as, as a potentially exhaustible resource. Something more like uh, fisheries that or fossil fuels, things that we need to manage and, and think about conservation as well as just getting the newest pill into our bodies. Because unlike every other form of pharmaceuticals, these drugs have resistance, and therefore they decline in effectiveness. So um, my major concern with the legislation in Congress and the reason why we work in policy with with many of these groups is that they need to balance these incentives for new drugs and also give incentives for the companies to conserve them, to think about the long term. Is there anything else we can do to put pressure on on the drug companies and not to make them out into the most, you know, evil, you know, forces around, which some people think of them as. No, but not. So, you know, here in Boston, there, there's, a, there's a company that, that makes a, an outstanding um, antibiotic, you know, daptomycin, and the company is Cubist Pharmaceuticals in Boston, and, and their brand name for the daptomycin is, is Cubicin. It's a great antibiotic. It's really, it's really useful. Um, it does interesting things. Um, but, uh, you know, Cubist is a is a for-profit company, and they need to sell it during the patent period. What would be best for public health would be if the government um, could somehow give a reward, a huge reward, you know, billion-dollar type reward to a company like Cubist um, so that they would under-market or stop marketing their drug mm-hmm. uh, for the next decade and just allow it to be used in the most critical situations, mm-hmm. okay? That would align incentives. It would save this drug for when we might really need it, a decade hence, you know, in the population. I'll still allow it to be used for emergency situations, but also reward the company for the, the great work they did to bring this molecule to the market. We can't just tell them, oh, thanks for the molecule, um, but we're not going to allow you to sell it. That's one way to tell to discourage any company from doing this research. So the proposal that myself and my colleague at Harvard, Aaron Kesselheim, have put forth is uh, to create an incentive structure, like a a reward payment for companies who bring outstanding antibiotics to the market, but to condition getting that reward on the companies actually conserving the utilization of the product for the long term. So they only get the reward if they do what, what the public health people say is the right thing for the long term use. It sounds a little bit like you're suppressing, and you'll pardon the devil's advocate question, but it sounds like you're sort of suppressing the, the, the free market. You're saying companies, we know you're creating great antibiotics, but used the wrong way can create problems. Yeah. What do you say to the person who says, you know what, let them make 
whatever they want. They're not making fatal drugs. They're making drugs that ostensibly are supposed to be are supposed to help. Um, could we not just let them do their thing and then educate doctors and the rest of us that there's there are potential harms to these if overused? Well, that's what we're doing today. And anytime you have intellectual property law like a patent, you've changed the free market. So the government's already done that. And most economists like the idea of having patents as an incentive to, for companies to do research and development. So we've already messed with the market. But for a company like, like Cubist, um, you know, they I've talked to some of their, their scientists. They do want to do what's right. They, they would prefer to, to not cause resistance to this drug. But they also have an economic incentive to sell and to meet their sales targets. So... So I think that the the evidence is strong that the the market doesn't work for these types of exhaustible resources. You know, when you have the combination of a patent system and a drug which is which can be destroyed through overutilization, uh, you set up a, a situation in which the market will fail. And so what we're what we're trying to do is to make a an incentive that that retains as much of the market system as possible. The sort of reward would still encourage lots of different companies to try to do R&D platforms. It would not, you know, prevent them from bringing drugs to market. It would actually encourage it. But when they do, what they're going to get paid for is not over-marketing the drug. They're going to get paid for the long-term health impact of the drug, the way that that um, that it improves the, the health of the public as opposed to what they can convince people to write scripts on. Well, we're going to take a quick break here on the BU School of Law podcast, and when we return, more about this interesting topic with Professor Kevin Alderson. Stick with us. Located in Boston and steeped in 139 years of a rich tradition, BU Law is ranked number one in the nation for best professors and number eight for best classroom experience, according to the Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872, and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Think you might like to have us create your own podcast on LegalTideNetwork.com? Go to the website and send us an email, or just give us a call at 781-551-9960. It's the best move you'll make in legal marketing. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. Well, hello and welcome back to the BU School of Law podcast. I'm David Yaz, your host, and we're talking today with Professor Kevin Alderson, who is the Associate Professor of Health Law, Bioethics, and Human Rights at the School of Law. been talking about this very interesting issue about the overuse of antibiotics and the way that patent law and some other legislation and policies are interacting with this issue and the concern being the overuse of antibiotics and the pharmaceutical company's incentive to actually push these. So, we talked a little bit about what what's happening with legislation, uh, Professor, and I guess if you could just, for our listeners, maybe recap sort of where we are, maybe what we can expect over the next couple of years on this. There's a lot of interest in, uh, you know, so-called superbugs, uh, and so I think that uh, you'll continue to see articles in the, in the press and attempts in Congress to do something dramatic. 
Um, Professor, sorry to interrupt you. When you use a, a fancy legal term like superbugs, I have to ask <laughs> for a definition. For those that don't know, a superbug is what? Uh, there's, um, there's been quite a few articles in the press about um, you know, microbes that are resistant to multiple antibiotics or perhaps you know resistant to every known form of antibiotic. And these are called colloquially uh, a superbug, you know, some sort of a bacteria that nothing works against. And um, there's not really very many of these at this point. Um, people hear a lot about uh, MRSA, uh, MRSA, um, which you know, has some elements of this. But this is part of what's motivating Congress, is uh, really the fear of something horrible happening. Um, I'm interested in, in that, you know, the, this pandemic plague that could wipe out humanity sort of, you know, fear. But I'm also interested in just the everyday antibiotics that we use in hospitals that make things possible like, you know, open heart surgery and knee replacement. You know, we couldn't do those procedures the way that we do them now if we didn't have normal, you know, routine antibiotics in the hospital. And so part of the project is to make sure that we continue to have these ordinary antibiotics available so that the medicine that we're used to getting can continue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See, when you call something a superbug, it's just a matter of time before there's a horror movie of the same name, don't you think? It probably already <laughs> is, and we just haven't seen it. There's, there's three or four books out. Is know? that right? Yeah. Well, right. I mean, it's you've, you've said it. I mean, when you create something like that and give it a term like that, it's meant to inspire fear in people. So, Yeah. Um, yeah I'm, I'm not a beer, big fear monger. I think that the actual data is... Uh, is, is disturbing, but uh, that we don't need to to try to scare people. We need just the actual data on what's happening. I suppose if it gets people's attention, at least it raises the issue a little bit. Let's talk about Vermont's prescription privacy law. So so back in June, and it was a close ruling, a 6-3 ruling, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the data mining companies that compile the data and sell it to the pharmaceutical companies. Tell us what's going on now with that case. Well, most people assume that... Uh, that all of your health information is private because of the federal HIPAA privacy rule. Uh, but in fact, a, a lot of it can be sold. And one of the things that that is sold is when you take your prescription, a little piece of paper to, down to the Walmart or CVS or whoever you use, Walgreens, um, those pharmacies sell data off that script to these data mining companies. And what they sell, they can't sell your name. But they assign you a, a unique patient identifier, you know, a, a long-digit number that's not your Social Security number, and they can sell that plus, um, you know, what's on the script, you know, the, the drug and the the dosing and the, you know, and whatnot, and uh, more importantly, the name of your doctor. So, what the companies do is then they aggregate all this information, and then they can go back to the drug companies and say. Drug company, you're you're going to send a salesperson in to see Doctor Bob. Mm-hmm. We can tell you exactly what scripts, what prescriptions Doctor Bob wrote every day for the last five years. Um, which patients filled those? You know, which so like we can show you that patient X has been using your drug for the past two years and just Thursday switched to your competitor's drug and filled that at the Walgreens down the street. And so that drug salesman going in now has extraordinary information to be able to convince the doctor uh, to switch patient X, who they don't know the name of, back to their drug. Or 
you know, all sorts of things they can do with this information. They, they'll know which doctors are their best customers. They'll know after they take doctors out to a nice dinner, which doctors actually change their behavior. So, well, it's even more frightening to think it, it's frightening on, on the part of the doctors. I would think the doctors may be feeling a big brother kind of pressure on them to, to watch every last script that they write. Yeah, it's also, I, it's also sort of disturbing when you think about it, even though you're, you're assigned an anonymous number that even that that record exists, you know, I would, I would worry about some, you know, enterprising computer hacker who could, you know, figure out who certain people are and, you know, sell that to yeah, who knows Ver- who. Vermont was concerned that Vermont's a small state. So there's a lot of rural areas and if there may not be more than, you know, one or two people who fill their prescriptions at a small town pharmacy who have a, a particular disease and it wouldn't be hard to combine the data from this data mining with other things like the information from your supermarket rewards card or the data that they that they you know they know that you subscribe to you know a, a magazine about diabetes care and they combine all this information and they can re-identify exactly who you are and and what you buy and sell so Vermont was concerned about this and passed a law which said that unless the doctor said yes the pharmacies could no longer sell this information to uh, to the data miners, and uh, to my you know, great disappointment, the Supreme Court ruled six to three that uh, you know Thomas Jefferson and, and the founders thought that the First Amendment um, you know protected data mining of prescriber identifiable information. Yeah, I'm not so sure the framers of the First Amendment had this in mind when they crafted it. I don't <laughs> yeah, think I was I was being I was mocking. No, that. I know you were and, yeah. and I happen to agree with you. It's um to envision a day like this where, you know, privacy concerns are just huge given the the speed at which information moves. It's just a scary it's just a scary thought. You know, it's almost like you you want to throw up your arms and say I give up, you know, Big Brother knows exactly what kind of drugs I take and exactly what kind of terrible movies I rent and all this. So <laughs> Well, on the terrible movies after after the Clarence Thomas uh, you know, confirmation hearings in which, you know, they actually went to the blockbuster that he rented, you know, porno films at and right. and confronted him, you know, mm. they passed a law which makes your your rental history at Blockbuster, your local video store, protected under federal law. You can't get that information, and and they're not allowed to sell that information. I don't know about Netflix. Well, of course, that's that's the that's the tried and true customer DVD salesman privilege, right? Yeah, that's, so, <laughs> that's unusual. So, one of the things about this Vermont law is that it wasn't crafted specifically and exclusively as a privacy measure. They talked a lot about their desire. To uh, to make it harder for drug companies to market drugs, and and that's the piece that the Supreme Court seized on, and said you're impermissibly messing with the marketplace of ideas and advertising, and they said explicitly in the in the decision if this had been a privacy statute that was focused on protecting the privacy of the patient and the doctor, then maybe we would have had a t- completely different decision, and so I, I wrote an article from the New England Journal of Medicine which actually came out yesterday. Um, and looking at the Vermont decision, talking about this privacy aspect, and I know that various states are considering, you know, coming back with laws that focus, as the court suggested, on, on the privacy of the patient and the privacy of the doctor. And these uh, second-generation anti-data mining statutes, I think, uh, will be found to be constitutional. Um, 
you know, the opposite result of what we had in Vermont. So it's part of a process. You know, you write a statute, you see what the court says, and then you write a different statute to try to address the does, But does concern. the Vermont case, as it stands now, does it open any troubling doors, in your opinion? Well, there's some really frightening language in there as well. One one quote is that uh, you know, just because a, a company is able to, you know, market a product that the government doesn't like, you know, through pr- creative advertising and a catchy jingle doesn't mean that uh, the government can try to suppress its sales. And people read this language and thought, does that mean that that uh, companies have a right to lie about the fat content of their food? Or, or maybe uh, there's something constitutionally protected about tobacco companies uh, selling through Joe Camel cartoons, mm-hmm. you know, which, yeah. which were catchy and kind of targeting kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that is a, a topic in the New England Journal article I wrote yesterday. On Tuesday, that was published yesterday, on Tuesday, the tobacco companies filed suit in, in the District of Columbia in the D.C. federal court, saying that these new FDA warnings that are going to go on cigarettes next year which are going to be more graphic than what we have today. They're going to show, you know, somebody lying in their bed dying of, of lung cancer sort mm-hmm. of pictures. If you travel to different countries, other countries have had these warning packs for years. Mm-hmm. And the, the tobacco companies don't like them, as you can imagine. Right. <laughs> kind of put the damper in sales. That's the whole point. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are challenging these warning labels on First Amendment grounds citing this language in the in the Vermont data mining decision. So, uh, you know, it didn't take months for the companies or years for them to take advantage of this language. They filed the suit this week. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this will be a spectacular lawsuit because the companies are saying that the First Amendment of the Constitution, um, freedom of speech and freedom of religion, um, constitutionally protects the right of, of companies to, to sell cigarettes without without FDA warning labels. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's remarkable. And we will certainly <laughs> keep an eye on that. It is startling. It is startling. So there's so much more we could talk to Professor Alderson about, but we're up against the clock, unfortunately. So I, I want to uh, thank you, Professor, for joining us and to all of our listeners. And importantly, if, if someone wanted to contact you or learn more about this topic, where can we direct them? Um, well, you know, certainly... Uh, Come by BU Law School. Uh, we, we have a website for the Health Law Program. We have an, a newsletter we put out. The the blog uh, mm-hmm. at the Institutional Economist uh, probably has four or five posts a day on issues of health law and health economics. And Is there a, an opportunity there for people to respond to you on your blog? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So go to the incidentaleconomist.com. Again, it's all one word, the incidentaleconomist.com, and check out everything that Professor Artisan has, has blogged about. As I said, it's updated frequently and some very interesting stuff. So thank you so much, Professor, for joining us today. Take care. And you can find all the editions of the BU School of Law podcast on the Legal Talk Network, the BU Law website, and as well on iTunes. I'm your host, David Yes. Many thanks to everyone here at the Legal Talk Network. Superior work as usual. Thanks for listening. Have a great day, everyone. And until next time, case closed. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 
Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law. Thank you.